be Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to gather them for battle. They are as numerous as the sand of the sea. They marched up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No problems. Piece of cake. Straightforward imagery. All right, so let's, uh, let's, let's dive in and start uh, looking at some of the pictures uh, that, that are given here. In verse 1, we have an angel coming down out of heaven. Uh, holding the key. So that, we, we've done some of that imagery before. If you're holding a key to something, what does that mean? You have authority, possession, you, ha- you have a right. You know, you think about if you have the key to your house, you have authority to your house, right? You see, you talked about a Jesus who has the keys to uh, Hades and death and things like that. So uh, when you see a picture like that, there's authority that's being described of, of this angel. He seized the dragon. Who is the dragon? Yeah. You'll notice that he's going to make sure you know this in verse 2. That ancient serpent who is the devil uh, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. By the way, just as a, as a fun aside to you, you know, in Genesis, it never tells you that the serpent is Satan. Here's how you know. <laughs> it tells you here. Uh, it doesn't tell you that over there. They always have found that fascinating, that it doesn't specify that that's what you have. Only the New Testament gives you that, gives you that idea. And you'll notice it says that then the dragon is bound for a thousand years. They threw, he's thrown into a pit, locked in, and is sealed over him so that he would no longer deceive the nation. So there's a couple of things that we're going to be spending a lot of our time in our class talking about. We'll start trying to break down the thousand years and try to figure out what that is ultimately looking at and, and talking about, and then understanding what is going on with the devil here. And so I want you to notice that it tells us there in verse Three, that the devil, the Satan, the dragon, the serpent, there's four titles in there. He's locked into this abyss. He's held their chain over him and all of that. And the purpose is 
that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So we've, we've traced through 19 chapters in the book of Revelation so far. And so the, the primary question to ask is, so how did the dragon deceive the nations so that during this 1,000 years, he's no longer allowed to deceive the nations. We've got to understand what that means to be able to understand how he's not able to do that anymore. So the big thing to do is to think about, all right, well, what have we seen the dragon doing in the book of Revelation? We saw his appearance in chapter 12, and uh, he's been a critical part of the events that are that are going on. So my question to you is, what is the dragon doing when it, quote, deceives the nations so that during this thousand year interval when he's in the abyss, he's no longer allowed to deceive the nations? Let's let's get some ideas on the table. Let's see if we can uh, tie it to what we've seen so far with um, with what the dragon has done in the book of Revelation. Debbie. Okay, so one of the important things that we've, we see the dragon doing is in chapter 12, when he fails to destroy the Christ, remember the woman gives birth to the child and he's attempting to destroy the child and fails at doing, doing that and he is ascended and all of that. And it says at the end of chapter 12 that the dragon is now going to make war on the rest of the people of God, the offspring of, of, of the woman. So I think that's an important picture to have in our minds because that's what we are told the dragon's doing in Revelation. That's his one big threat ultimately is he is going to try to destroy the people of God. Now, how did the dragon go about trying to do that that we've seen in the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 13 through 17? Okay, idolatry. So did Satan come down to earth and start setting up idols? Because I think you're right. So how is he getting idolatry to be done, performed? Okay. So remember chapter 13, exactly. Chapter 13 is a picture of the dragon calling for the beast to come out of the sea, right? And takes its place. And the whole point of that beast is to essentially get the world to worship it, right? To And through idolatry, we've talked about the pagan idolatry. We've talked about the emperor worship. We've talked about how if you did not worship the beast in its image, you were either going to be killed or you would be not allowed to buy and sell. We saw that in chapter chapter 13, Dennis. And then that, that power for everybody to see is over the... Known world right. For right. Good. Right. So here's how I would sum up that idea, and then we can talk about if this doesn't make sense or if it doesn't work to you. But what the dragon did is he brought about a world empire that was so powerful that it was able to compel people to worship it to worship pagan gods, to participate in emperor worship. And if you didn't do it, 
you're going to be in a world of trouble. Remember, we I gave to you um, the letter of Pliny to Emperor Trajan about what do we do with these Christians who were not worshiping the idols and worshiping the images and all of that. And the book of Revelation chapter 13 described some were going to die for the cause of Christ. Some were going to be no longer allowed to operate in the marketplace anymore. So what you saw in chapter 13 was the dragon using the Roman Empire to cause all the people to think. Remember how it's, they're deceived by the power of the Roman Empire. That this thing can't fall and it is in charge and we need to worship it and follow it and obey it and be subservient to it. Whatever they say to do, that's what that's what we're going to do. And using that very empire then to persecute the people of God. That would be like my very not fast summary of what those chapters have have looked at about the function of the dragon deceiving the nations. Debbie? Uh, also, just the fact Sure. And that's been talked about as well, right? He's deceived the nations to commit sexual immorality. And I think that sexual immorality is a figure. I mean, sure, it would include sexual immorality, but I think it's indicating an unfaithfulness to God is that we, we are not worshiping God. We're worshiping the beast. We're worshiping the idols. We're worshiping the images. We're worshiping the emperor. We're not being faithful to God because we've seen in almost every chapter how the text has had this concern be faithful, don't be deceived, don't worship the beast. In fact, notice here in chapter 20, we read that. Notice in, in what verse 4, they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So again, we're able to identify what was the dragon doing that was doing that, getting that to happen through the beast. And here are the people who haven't done that, Charlotte. The devil has been operating Right. With this power that he had under the Roman Empire, I mean, we know that Roman Empire was a culmination with that sure. law. Right. Was this the greatest power he ever exercised at this point in time? I think it seems so to me. I, I would argue, yes, that before the Assyrian Empire arises, we don't historically read about world powers, world domination, right, world domination. And Assyria is really historically the first to be able to start that process. Babylon's even wider than that, and it kind of gets wider and wider and wider, and, and Rome becomes the ultimate in terms of size uh, than the others before it. So um, as I've talked to you all about in our study of connecting Daniel into this, that I find it interesting that Daniel concludes this power of world domination to persecute the people of God with the Roman Empire. And that seems to be historically accurate. That that's the end of global persecution in terms of a single world power being behind it. I was not saying there's not persecution. There will always be persecution. There will always be even world powers. But the levels of what you see the Roman Empire doing seems to have been put to a stop. And that's why I, I would qualify this deceiving the nations in that framework. Satan being allowed to use a world power that is so powerful 
that it's able to use that power to cause nations to not only turn against God, but to persecute the people of God and kill the people of God. That is my working definition because that's what we've seen in chapters 12 and 13. And just like the death before Rome, there hasn't been anything since Rome either. Britain was the, quote, the sun never set on the British Empire, but it's okay. not anything like Rome. Yeah. Right, and that's why I, I put the qualifier on here is that a world power that uses its power across the known world to persecute the people of God. That is what the Roman Empire is doing. Because that's, that's what I mentioned to you, Re- Revelation 12, the very end. What has Satan said he's going to do? But he's trying to destroy the offspring of the woman. Well, that's how he's going to do it, is use a world power uh, to, to do that. Ruby? I think when we just said it's important that he's being allowed to. That's right. In chapter 13, it talks about he was granted power. That's right. He can obviously be contained, or he can be let loose. That's exactly right. Absolutely. All of this has God in control of all of this. When God snaps his fingers and puts them into the abyss, then he goes into the abyss. All right, Mike? That's right. Yeah. And I think that was part of the deceiving of the people is the people looked at the Roman Empire and believed uh, it was impervious. It was indestructible. It was never going to, to fall. You know, it didn't matter what happened. And that's why the nations gave their allegiance to it and did what they did, because, you know, it wasn't like you were going to win against them. They seemed to wipe out anybody who comes against them. And you can read about that and how nations tried and failed. I mean, goodness, the, even uh, physical Israel tried repeatedly to rebel against Rome and failed. They tried in 70 and failed. They tried in around one was that around 115 under Hadrian and Hadrian came in and wiped him out too. And <laughs> everybody tried. It's like you either submit or you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. So I think it's depicting a unique circumstance where Satan is using world power to try to destroy the people of God. Uh, that seems to be the idea to me. All right. Is there any question about that part before we make things a whole lot harder? All right. So if you're working with that definition, I won't be able to explain this yet, because I think the explanation is given in verses 7 through 10. But please notice what verse 3 says. That after the thousand years, the dragon will be released for a little while. I won't talk about that yet. But that's intended to have a chilling going, whoa, What? Uh, he's put in the abyss for the thousand years, no longer allowed to deceive the nations. But then verse three says, after that, he must be let out for a little while. Hmm. But it's interesting that that's not the focus yet. That will come out in seven through 10. So that's why I have on here. That'll be explained shortly. And if we get to talk about seven through 10 today, great. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we get there that far or not. But note that that just kind of, Sets a table to us like, all right, there's something a little bit more that's awaiting this picture to say that he's going to be let loose for a little while. All right. So we're good with one through three. No problem. All right. Feels good. All right. 
Yeah, just head down and just, oh no. You know? <laughs> All right. Mike. I'll be the devil's advocate. Please. Nobody, yeah, nobody wants to push so back. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one thing that sometimes people get tripped up on is they'll read this text that will say, okay, he's been bound into the abyss for the 1,000 years. Does that mean that Satan's not tempting people and harming people? and doing? No, that's not what that's talking about. And I think that's important to see that the defining of deceiving the nations is very important here. He's not saying, you know, Satan can't do anything. That's He's called the prince of the power of the air. He, he, he's quite the troublemaker. But... His power to raise up a world empire for the purpose of persecuting the people of God has been locked down. And I think, you know, here we are on the other side of life able to look at that and go, well, that kind of looks like that's accurate. That certainly there have been nations and peoples and groups who have been persecutors, but not like a known world global everybody gets persecuted. Casey. Sure. And, you know, they're, they're power-hungry. They're, sure. you know, they're driven by the evil. Yes. Situated. Yes. And, and there is nothing in the scriptures that indicates or says that Satan is not as active as ever. You know, I mean, there's a reason Peter says he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is no picture of Satan that says... He's a tame little kitten who's over in the corner and he's, you know, taking a nap and everything's great right now. No, he's trying to destroy people. And so he will use peoples and leaders and nations and whatever he can possibly use to do that. So that's why I I feel like it's important to talk about what does it mean to deceive the nations? That is a very important figure that's being used here. And my answer is just to use what chapters 12 and 13 showed us. What was shown to us was Satan saying, I'm going to use a world power, global effort to destroy God's people. And that now has been stopped with the fall of the Roman Empire. Charlotte? I don't want to jump ahead. But, well, then don't. (laughs) When we've got the whole Bible. Yeah. Some, I mean, some, right? We we have the revealed truth. It should uh, available <laughs> for everybody. Sure, sure. It it should, <laughs> it should. But you know, how are we doing with that? You know, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, that that gets the four fingers right back at me immediately, Kathy. <laughs> Well, all right, so 7 through 10, we will hold on. (laughs) 7 through 10 gives the explanation of what that means. I just want us to all be creeped out for a minute. And it says he will be released for a little while. You're supposed to go, what? (laughs) Dane? Well, you know, this is where we must still remember that John is still getting visions. You know, um, and in essence, when we start to see the thousands, this is where too many kind of visions come in. How does John be able to see thousand years? Right. You gotta remember this is a vision. That's right. And there is still where um, you know the numbers that are being used in Revelation, some of them will reference completeness of time, passing of time, these kind of things. 
So we don't just take a thousand and just have to put it over a thousand years. Yeah. And then we start to think, well, how old is John? Yeah. A thousand years of vision has come from sight. Yeah. Remember, this is still a vision. Good. And we're getting some pictures about what's going on during that time. Good. And that's what we need to talk about next is let's talk about the time marker, because if we don't if we don't talk about that, then this is also going to be confusing. Two key elements. Now, uh, I am going to strenuously argue with you that the thousand years must be symbolic because that's what we've been doing the whole book. Uh, we're in chapter 20 now, and we have been strenuously pointing out that this is a vision and everything is in symbols unless something in the text demands otherwise. And I have submitted to you that there have only been two times where the numbers have indicated something literal. Seven churches of Asia, because they're named. If it hadn't have been that they named them all, I'd say seven is a perfect number, and we're talking just about all the churches. But then he goes, Ephesus and Sardis. And you go, okay, he doesn't mean a symbol. They are actual seven churches. And then I did the same thing in chapter 17 where we talked about the seven uh, heads or the seven hills. And then it's, and you go, okay, seven hills, that's always been a figure of Rome. He's just talking about Rome. And then he does this five have fallen, one is, and one's yet to come, and the eighths of the seventh that goes to destruction. You kind of go, okay, you gave some details there. Maybe that's forcing me to look a little bit deeper as to what these, these seven are. So those are only two times. I would especially argue right here, if the thousand years are not taken symbolically, then you need to take everything in the paragraph as literal, as not a symbol. So now we're back to an actual dragon put into an actual abyss for an actual 1,000 years. And then when he gets out, you know, all the things that we're going to reread here in just a minute, we're talking about marks on foreheads and, and gogs and magog and all that kind of stuff. It, it, the, these are symbols. And I think since the 1,000 years are just simply given as a number, you'll notice that there's a contrast Satan is in the abyss for a thousand years. That's a really big number, right? That's long time. But then notice that the end of verse three, how long will Satan be let loose? A little while, short time. All right. So there's your contrasting figure. Long time locked up, little time unable, to, but come, comes out to deceive the nation. So I think that's the, the bigger idea with the symbolic, the symbolic use. Yes, April. Good, good question. So that's sometimes one of the things that I get uh, troubled by is sometimes when people hear that something is a symbol, they think that that means it's not actual. Things, though they are symbolic, doesn't mean they are not literal. So here's, here's some of the examples that I like to use of that. When you see a red eight-sided you know, octagon as you drive... You are seeing a symbol. And the symbol means just keep doing whatever you were doing. It's just a story. You know, just ignore that. You know, it's just, no. It, there's a literal meaning to the sign you're reading. The sign is telling you, stop. <laughs> if you see an upside down triangle, <laughs> that's a yield sign. That's telling you, you know. Sign doesn't mean not actual. 
A symbol or a sign means it represents something. So here, the dragon, it actually represents the devil. That doesn't mean he's not actual. It's just a picture of what he is using imagery. And the same thing that we're going to do with a thousand years is it doesn't mean this is not an actual time frame, but it's using 1000 to say this is a really long time frame (laughs) in contrast to little while. So very important. And and I'm glad you brought that up because I said that like at the very beginning of our study, which has been, I don't know when, uh, a long time ago, (laughs) that symbols and signs and images does not mean there's not something actual under it. It does point to something literal and actual and real. It's not once upon a time there was a dragon who had an abyss and he would, it's not doing that. It's, it's not a story, but using vivid imageries in a way that we can picture it in, in, in our minds. So that's a, that's a great question. Mike? Uh, I forget which person is, but talk about God owning the, the cattle of a thousand hills. So what about the open for one thousand hills? Yeah, and that's a great point. Is if you go through particularly uh, Old Testament scripture, a thousand is frequently used as a large round number that is not actual one thousand, and that's that's a great use of it. You know, as he watches over one thousand hills, but not the thousandth and one hill. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's using a picture of it means all of them. It's a very complete full full number, uh, and so that's. Thousand is is as big as you're going to get with with those numbers. And I think a great example of that obviously is the statue in Daniel two. You know, that's a, a, a sign. Yep. But most definitely, we know yep. what each of those statues are. Yes. And, and it, you spend enough time in the scriptures, you see that God likes to use visuals to communicate His messages. Not only like. The prophetic books that use those kind of pictures from Zechariah and Isaiah. And I mean, goodness, we just recently did Ezekiel. That's pictures all over the place. Crazy pictures, uh, but trying to give a reality to help us visualize what things are like. But even on a simple level, how often did Jesus tell parables to the crowds? Text says he never. Uh, that's the double negative. How about I cross out the double negative? He always spoke to the crowds. (laughs) He always spoke to the crowds in the parable. Well, why? Well, because taking a picture helps communicate the reality. And Jesus never started with once upon a time. There was this. The story that he tells was grounded in reality. It was always grounded in reality. Which, as a fun aside, people like to have an argument over Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Is it a parable or is it not? It doesn't matter. If that is a real two individuals, you know, one's in torment and one's in comfort, great. If it's a parable, it still doesn't make it that it means it's not real. Jesus never told stories that weren't real. You know, he never said there was a unicorn flying through on a pegasus and... If it's a parable, it's still grounded in reality. And so he's still telling you what the realm of the dead looks like. Whether it's a parable or not, it's still grounded in reality. So arguing over if it's a parable or not is pretty irrelevant because it's still communicating the very same point. There is a reality to when we die and where we're going to go and what that's going to ultimately uh, look like. Julie, then I'll come back to you. Julie, go ahead. Um, So, you know, I... 
Yeah, me either. Yeah, if I were to broad brush chapter 20, it's the demise of Satan and the vindication of God's people. No, that, that's what chapter 20 is doing. This, this is finally the end of Satan here. And finally, the ultimate vindication that we read all the way back in chapter 6, waiting for the people of God to finally enjoy. They're now getting that vindication in, in chapter 20. April? I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. It's the same to say that the Holy Bible is in comparison to a history book. I don't know that that would be a good parallel for this reason. Not because the Bible is not historical, it is. But theoretically, <laughs> history books aren't trying to necessarily teach you deeper meanings, but are somewhat trying to just tell you what happened. With the events, what I'm trying yes, to the events would be historical, yes. But I would read it more as actual events with God trying to teach you something through the events. That would be kind of how I would distinguish it. Whereas, and certain history books certainly are trying to teach you. I'm not saying that it's not, but, you know, kind of in a more absolute theoretical way, it's supposed to be somewhat of a presentation of the facts of the things that have happened. And the Bible is a presentation of the facts to teach you particular things about God. That's kind of how I would alter that a little bit. Evan, you want to argue with me on that or is that okay? <laughs> My, my resident historian, I don't think you shoot me for that one. <laughs> All histories are written to teach something, right? What? You get a different lesson. Because you have to pick certain events, and there's a reason you're choosing and, and, and them. And narrators choose what they want to mm-hmm. You can't tell everything all at once, or it just becomes a big blurry. Exactly. There's a narrative. Right. So. That's why I was trying to be kind of careful with that. I'm like, I, it's not just, it, it is, there's a point. <laughs> uh, uh, Audrey. Does this mean that there will never be another world power like Rome? 
Well, let's hold on to that too. When we get to 7 through 10, we're going to have to talk about that. And I'm getting the sense you guys are going to be waiting a long time to talk about that one. But, <laughs> but yes, that's 7 through 10 is the answer to your question. It's, it's in that paragraph, but uh, I don't think we're going to get there. Julie? <laughs> well, I was going to say it is a history book because it documents. Yes. Like I was going to say, it is a documentation. But it also says in Hebrews 4 and 12 and 13 that living in Africa. Right. So the Bible is living. Yeah. Because it's alive. Yeah. Uh, so, difficult Yeah, and the reason I'm careful with that is because I feel like I kind of was. I don't know if I was taught this or just got the impression, like, you know, when so when you read First Kings, it's just a history of the kings of Israel, and no, it's not. It's telling you certain people a certain way with certain details to teach you something in particular about God. And I never caught that as a kid. I, I always, you know, oh, okay, there's Ahab. Oh, okay, yeah, he, okay, bad, you know, unhappy face, you know, right? <laughs> and didn't get the big idea of what, well, why is this even here? <laughs> what's it trying to say about things? And ultimately, what's it trying to say about God? So uh, that's been a more modern light bulb for me than <laughs> anything else. So that's why I don't want to say, oh, it's just history, because every bit of what God even tells is saying something. And there's a reason he's saying it the way he's saying it. And the Gospels are very much that way. When you're studying the Gospels, you're like, why are there four Gospels? You know, Why not just have one you know, cohesive one? In fact, we like to buy books that jam them all together. And, and yet God's going, no, I'm giving you four because here's four different perspectives of four different ways I want to show you who Christ is. And so we have to have that kind of lens that it's not just, oh, and then the next day Jesus woke up and did this. That's, that's not, not his point. And, <clears throat> you know, this is a good you know, sidebar here because Revelation kind of lends itself to that. There are two scriptures that I always like to refer to when, when we kind of look at what context do we value the scriptures in. Second um, Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Timothy 3, 16, where Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration yeah. of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then Second Peter chapter one, where he says, but in verse twenty, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Right. We have to remember that the scriptures are unapologetic about telling us who God is. We don't have to worry about making up our perception of who God is. God tells us. And he gives us not everything that we'll ever grasp or understand about him, but enough that we get to choose. Do we worship and serve God, which is what Revelation is all about, right. or do we choose not? That's right. And the thing here is, is you know, the, the scriptures are going to be unapologetic about setting themselves apart from any other book of history or any other book of religion. In showing that, listen, this is who God is. Yes. And this is what He's telling us. I gave you this for your benefit. Absolutely. You have to consume it according to the way He says it or not. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Mike? Hold, well, hold on, we're not we're not there yet. You, you, you won't let me get there, so I'm just not there yet. That's four through six. I'm still back here. I'm still back here in the thousand years. So, 
<laughs> we got to define we got to define the thousand years here yet. So uh, we left off with that being a symbolic number representing a long period of time. One of the exciting things to me about where things have moved in in biblical studies is that there has been a pretty hard push away from a literal reading of the 1,000 years that for a long time has really been the predominant view in, in Christianity. And long time is probably not a fair word. Long time in the last 200, 150 years. Uh, premillennialism states there's going to be an actual 1,000 years that will come uh, in which once that all happens, that only then can Christ return. And I'm excited to see that there's been a movie, a strong moving away from that because there's no reason chapter 20 should be taken as an actual thousand years. We're, we're in symbolic terminology and imagery of these, of, of these numbers. We should just be reading this as a long period of time. Uh, here's Tremper Longman. He is a very highly noted uh, Old Testament scholar. And, and he said, this is why many theologians believe that this number, which extends from the time that Christ is, I mean, sorry, that Satan is bound until the time that he is loosed, refers to the time between the resurrection, which is Christ's victory over Satan, and the second coming when Jesus will win the final victory. This is, this is becoming a, a bigger and bigger view. And it's interesting to me that historically the thousand year point of view goes through cycles. Um, through the 1800s and early 1900s, the bigger view was something that's called post-millennialism, which is the world has to get better and better and better. And as it gets better and better and better and moves to this golden age, then Christ is ultimately going to return. It's always funny how world events blow those things to bits. Then World War I happens and people go, you know, I don't know that post-millennialism makes sense. <laughs> things don't look like they're getting better. And World War I causes an inversion. And everybody goes, how about premillennialism? The world's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's going to be chaos and wars and fights and all that. And, and then he's going to fi finally come. And so then every war that has ever come along has refired that, that view. World War II refired it. Korea, Vietnam, Persian Gulf was really crazy in the 90s. All those books came out like, like wildfire. Like, this is it. This is the end of the world. Here it all is. And, of course, it didn't happen. So now scholars are like, well, maybe it's a symbol. And I've been like, yeah. <laughs> a thousand years is a symbol. So one of the exciting things is, is that there has been a move more and more to a, a symbol uh, point of view where that has been pretty much a, a minority view for a long time. For Tremper Longman to say it, I think, is exciting. And for him to say there's many theologians who are agreeing with that, I think, is exciting as well. That yeah, that's the most natural way to read this chapter is that we're just talking about a significant long period of time. He makes the note here that is talking about the time when Satan is bound and when he is loosed to be between the time of Jesus' resurrection and his, his second coming. And I think that verses 4 through 6 uh, ultimately confirm that. And I only have five minutes for four through six, so I'm, I'm going to burn through this, but I'm not going to, not trying to, you know, override your, your questions here. But I want you to notice in verse four, you see a picture that those who are faithful to the Lord, who have died for the cause of Christ, 
They are pictured as alive and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Julie brought that up a little little bit earlier. You're seeing a vindication and a victory of the uh, of the people of God. But what I want you to observe then is you're seeing that there's an equation being made to the thousand years as being the time of the reign of Christ. And so therefore I could ask two pretty simple questions. When do we see in the New Testament that the reign of Christ was inaugurated? When did his reign begin? Resurrection. Resurrection. The scriptures are very plain about that. You can go all over the place. Old Testament, New Testament. Peter's sermon is his resurrection means he is on the throne and reigning right now. When will his reign ultimately end? What do the scriptures say? When all the enemies are defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the plainest spot where you can read that. So there is a necessary conclusion to be drawn from that. That means we're right now in this symbolic thousand year reign point of time, living between the time of Christ's resurrection and the time of his second return. And here, so here we are. This is, this is a symbolic long period of time that has been going on where Christ is ruling. Debbie? Um, so therefore it would be very telling, and it's been over 2,000 years since Christ was resurrected. Right. So Well, that becomes part of the problem, right? Is if you want the 1,000 years to be a literal, actual 1,000 year time frame, where do you start it? And if you want to start it as his resurrection, then you've got a problem because, okay, then it's when we get to 1,029, 1,030, the 1,000 years have ended. And there's nothing significant about that year, right? So, so again, it enforces the idea that this must be a just saying there's going to be a long time, you know, where Christ is going to reign. And then we have to be accepting of that, that sometimes when you like, every generation has lived in the he's coming right now. And all of us should live with our lives ready that he's coming right now. But the thousand year reign says it could be a really long time. I mean, this could be going on for a long time, folks. We, we, have, we have absolutely no idea. I mean, I doubt people in 700 AD thought there would be a 2023. And I doubt if I said to any of you, there's going to be a year 4,524, you know, you'd be like, oh, come on. Why not? <laughs> we don't know where we are in the timeline. All that we know is it's going to be a long time. This long reign of Christ as he rules over, over heaven and earth. Julie? So this is kind of exciting for me because that's kind of what I got to last week. Good. During our hours and hours of discussion, <laughs> I was like, I think we're kind of living in this now. Yeah. Anyway, the problem with uh, people like my mom who's changed her thinking into more of um, a different religion thinking is that if the thousand years are coming, then that means he's not reigning right now. And I always Good. say, you know, Jesus has the keys to death and peace. Good. So you cannot tell me he's not reigning right now currently. Yes. And that's been the biggest problem. It is the biggest like problem. He has the keys to death and Hades. If he was victorious and he was resurrected, that's right. then I'm not waiting for him to, he doesn't need to defeat Satan yet. He's right. already done it. Exactly. So that's the problem I have with, oh, the thousand years is coming. Mm-hmm. It can't be coming. That's right. So it, it doesn't, and I wish I could 
speak that in love to people, yeah. but it just it's so hard when you have that thought that it's coming. Yeah, and that's the, the best angle about about all that is <clears throat> um, sometimes people will say, well, what does it matter what we believe about what's going to happen at the end of all this? Because we ain't going to be alive for it anyway, and God's going to do whatever he's going to do. And, and there's some truth to that. You know? However God's going to make that all play out, he's going to make it play out whether what you think about it or not. The problem that you have with those point of views is exactly what you put your finger on. Which is, if it's not the thousand years now, then Christ does not reign now. And that's what Peter said in Acts 2, that he is. And Christ reigning now means there's forgiveness of sins and the inclusion of all people to come into his kingdom. So if he's not reigning now then there is not forgiveness of sins yet. There is not the inclusion of all people. We are still under the old system, awaiting for his reign to begin, which is a huge, huge, huge problem. And people don't seem to grasp that that is a disconnect, that you can't have a future reign of Christ because what you have the scriptures tying together so strongly is restoration and forgiveness of sins and hope and life and all of that is bound to Christ's resurrection and and rule. So if he didn't raise and then rule, I don't know what's happening right now. We're kind of in this unknown world awaiting that. That's the problem with it. Otherwise, I would be like, sure, you think whatever you want to think about end times doesn't really matter. But Christ's reign matters because his sitting on the throne is everything to what gives us hope. All of the Old Testament is looking forward to a Messiah sitting on the throne so that the people can be restored and enjoying blessings and forgiveness and salvation and all of that. And you don't have that if he's not on the throne. That's the real big deal. So I'm over time, but real fast, real fast, real fast. Go ahead. I was going to say, think of the thousand. Yes. So if the state condemns someone to jail for 400 years, we know they're not going to serve 400 years. They're going to die before the end of it. Right. What we're demonstrating, why the judge goes through all of that, is to demonstrate the power of the state to hold Jesus. Yes. And so if you think of the thousand years, to a human, a thousand years doesn't even make sense right. in our logic. Good. It's a statement about the continuing strength of Jesus to hold that. That's right. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. All right. 13 minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030 for our our next hour. Please do some homework on verses 7 through 10. Please, please, please. Uh, Because in a couple of weeks we'll be talking about that. So really work hard on that for me. Thanks, everybody.